original sin, I would argue, is probably, I think it's present in the text, the kind of the traditional doctrine. But I think the traditional doctrine needs to be uh, more incorporative. It needs to speak about death because death is kind of kind of the big picture here. Is it a sin nature? It's possible. You're born into a world, you have proclivities and desires. Whether or not you're guilty for those until you actually act upon them, I think is debated. What seems to happen very clearly is what is actually passed on is mortality. Welcome everybody. Today we're going to be talking with Nick Quint. This is what your pastor didn't tell you. We're going to be talking about original sin, whether Paul thinks that Adam was historical, whether Paul thinks that Adam died or what's it just spiritual death. There's a lot of different interpretations on that. Uh, today, Nick Quint's going to be talking. Nick, can you tell us a little about yourself as well as what you're doing in life and all that? Yeah, uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, I co-host or rather I co-host a podcast with my wife called uh, Split Frame of Reference, Split Frame of Reference podcast. Uh, I'm the host of New Testament Theologist on YouTube, uh, where we talk about all things theology and New Testament. It's a lot of fun. Um, uh, currently going through Romans 8 through 11, which is is interesting and entertaining, and hopefully a series on women, women in ministry after all of that. Uh, PhD candidate, New Testament at Ridley College, MA from Fuller, husband to a really pretty and smart woman doing her PhD too, and uh, father to a uh, really rambunctious two-year-old. So that's me in a nutshell. Awesome. All right. So we're going to talk about Romans 5 to start out with. Uh, you want to do a little reading and then just give me your general thoughts on the, on the reading? Yeah. So I'll pull it up right here. So I'll read from the NIV. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sin. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern or a type of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass, for if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace in the gift that came by the grace? Boy, they really... For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who obtain or accept God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. Now the law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So, Lots of grace, lots of sin, lots of death, lots of trespasses. And what we see, I, I think, oh, go ahead. No, go for it. All right. So one of the things we see is uh, Adam plays a very specific function in the story. And now there's lots of talk about original sin and history and all that sort of stuff. But uh, Paul, I think it's safe to say, assumes that Adam is a historical person. Uh, that there is uh, historical pedigree or a foundation to kind of what happened in Adam. But 
Paul's emphasis is on how Adam functions in the narrative, how Adam functions in history, in God's story. And so on the one hand, the history, historicity of Adam is important to Paul, but it's more about how Adam, uh, how Adam functions in the narrative. So uh, Genesis, as according to John Walt and others, uh, is very keen on how things work, where things go, what things do. You know, the sun gives light and all that sort of stuff. With Adam and Eve, at least in Paul's theology, they function pedagogically and narratively. How, what do they do? Uh, what is their purpose? And Paul tells us in Romans 5, 14, that Adam is, a, as the NIV translates it, pattern, but it's, it's tupos, it's type, uh, of the one who is to come, that is Christ. And so you have kind of a parallel issue here between Adam and Christ, and Christ is, or rather, Adam is the type of the one who is to come, who is what we would call the last Adam. And so the question then becomes, what does Adam do in God's narrative, in the, in the narrative of Paul? And Paul, or rather, Adam functions to illustrate the invasion of sin and death into the cosmic order, right? Where do, it's not about the origin of sin per se, but where it comes from and how it kind of reaches into God's world, into the cosmos. How does it invade God's holy order? And then uh, basically because of sin, death comes in and then you have this uh, kind of cyclical problem of sin and death kind of fomenting with each other, playing off each other, and ultimately bringing death as kind of the, the tyrant over creation, death reigning or exercising dominion. But somehow God in Christ, the death of Christ even, uh, rescues us from this sin and death. And so that's kind of the big picture of Adam in Romans 5. Um, original sin, I would argue, is probably, I think it's present in the text, the kind of the traditional doctrine. But I think the traditional doctrine needs to be uh, more incorporative. It needs to speak about death because death is kind of, kind of the big picture here. And so it's not enough to talk about sin. It's we should almost be talking about original sin and original death side by side. And so death is kind of the result of things. And if we want to speak about things being passed on from Adam, you know, we might say the the sin big bang, you know, and Adam and Eve then we need to be talking about what happens and what's actually passed down. Is it a sin nature? It's possible. You're born into a world, you have proclivities and desires. Um, whether or not you're guilty for those until you actually act upon them, I think is debated. But what seems to happen very clearly is what is actually passed on is mortality. That is the big thing that's passed on from Adam and Eve. And that's what happens. Adam is the one who births death in our world. Because at that point, Adam and Eve were not mortal. They were mortable, meaning they were dependent on immortality, eating from the tree of life in the garden. But once transgression and sin entered into the world, they're cut off from the tree of life and therefore kind of return to mortality. And that's where we live now. We, are, we essentially, um, are pat, the, the sin of Adam and Eve is passed down to us through mortality and that propensity and reality of sin that we live in both individually, how we interact with each other, but also um, even in our in our in the way we conceive of the world, you know, uh, sin and you know, sex being a premier example, you know, sinful desires and all that sort of stuff. So that's kind of a big picture kind of painting, that painting right there, of kind of how things work, uh, at least as I see them working in and in, in Paul's use of Adam in Romans five. 
So you mentioned how the idea of like, are we guilty of sin? Would you say that we can come to the conclusion that we are guilty for Adam's sin because of this text? Because of what Paul thought? I, I think it's, I don't, I, I can see where people are coming from. Like, I, I don't think it's an insane interpretation. So I, I can see the logic of it. I think what's more likely is we are already judged by Adam's sin because we die. I think that's more overt in the passage. Um, and what seems to be the message of scripture predominantly is you are not judged for what you didn't do. You know, uh, you're not, why would it, why, why would we judge you for what you didn't do? Rather, uh, what seems to be the, the case, at least according to Old Testament law and Judaism, is God cares very much about the sin you actually commit versus your desires to sin. Because, you know, all over the place, you know, people are resisting sin, you know, fleeing from sin, trying to stay away from sin, um, resisting idolatry and all that sort of stuff. And so if you have kind of a, 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 health, a, a healthy view of anthropology, and I, I don't mean an optimistic view of anthropology, I mean a, a realistic view of anthropology, people resist things all the time and aren't, are therefore not punished for them, you know? Uh, think of the great story of Nineveh, you know, God relented from punishing Nineveh because they repented. And so um, I think I think it's an overreach in this text to read this text in a way that um, you are guilty of Adam's sin. Uh, even uh, So I think the message would be better say, stated by me this way. Um, you will sin. Sin is just in the world we live in. It's in the air we breathe. It's something we don't even think about until we have the law or we have our parents or we have the spirit of Christ that kind of reorientates our mind, kind of changes our hearts, you know, so to speak, gives us, gives us the object of Christ, you know, through whatever it is, say, I believe prevenient grace. But the inevitability of sin is, is kind of guaranteed, but you're not guilty of sin until you actually kind of participate in Adam's realm. It's one thing to exist in Adam's realm, the realm of sin and death. It's another thing to be a participant in it. So it's one thing to be, you know, a slave in something, but it's another thing to be a participant in that slavery, if that makes sense. And I think that's kind of Paul, and we see that in Romans 8, you know, putting to death the deeds of the body in Romans 8, 13. If you do that, you will live, you know, but you do it with the spirit and all that sort of stuff. And so I think you can talk about original sin all you want, but if you divorce it from death and you revert, uh, divorce it from mortality and you divorce it from uh, how guilt seems to function in Romans and shame, you know, guilt and shame and that sort of stuff seems to function in Romans, then you have a problem where sin gets emphasized to the point where there's no other doctrine. You know, you, we need a more holistic view here. Paul can be talking about original sin in kind of the classical or Augustinian sense, but that's not all he's saying. And we, we do a real disservice to the text when that's what we go for. You know what I mean? Um, there's so much more to the passage, and I think it's a much bigger picture. And let's face it, um, death is the thing that is most certain in the passage because sin exercises dominion and reigns and, you know, tyrannically almost. And that's why eternal life is contrasted with death so often in Paul. You know, they're, they're antitheses. Um, sin is actually, ironically enough, if we read 1 Corinthians 15, as we will later, death or sin isn't the final enemy to be destroyed. It's death. And so I think that's, I don't know, I, I, I think death is far more the problem of Romans 5 than sin is. Um, although I do see sin having a very specific function and a very real reality there as well. Okay, yeah. So, so you, obviously it seems like death is the main focus here. It's not necessarily the sin, but what well, is the sin, but it's the sin that causes death. Death is compared to Christ, which, you know, gives life and all that. Um, but there's, there's 
there's a lot of people that will say, yeah, it could be talking about physical death, but Paul's probably talking about only spiritual death. And, you know, some people say it's both. And they'll give a couple of reasons for that. So one in Romans 5.14, it says, yet death reigned from Adam until Moses, even are those who do not sin in the same way that Adam, who is a type of the one uh, coming, coming one, transgressed. So in other words, Adam until Moses is where death was, but it's not there anymore. Therefore, uh, you know, it can't be referring to physical death. And I'll, I'll give you another one and then you can comment. Uh, so Romans 5, 17 says, for if by the transgression of the one man, death reigned through the one, how much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one Jesus Christ? And then uh, 18 says, consequently, just as condemnation for all people came through one transgression, so too through the one righteous act came righteousness leading to life for all people. So they'll say that Paul contrasts, Paul contrasts life and death and the grace and the gift of righteousness with condemnation so that it can't be referring to physical death because you know those aren't physical things what do you think about that um i, I tend to think it's probably both and I, I don't and this is the problem with with kind of common words that get used in theological conversations is i don't know quite what people mean, mean by spiritual death because that's that's a very vague term I, I think i know what they mean you know interpreting it charitably i think i know what people mean by that the problem is i think what they mean by that and I'm going out on a limb here. They mean something more like existential or relational death, meaning separation, right? You know, kind of that existential kind of, you know, uh, divorce, you know, not literal divorce, but the divorce between God and humankind. Um, the problem is I, that is very rarely how death is used. So death just on its own, if we just interpret it in the normal meaning of the word, means the cessation of bodily life. It can be extrapolated metaphorically to mean something like, um, separation you know um um you're dead to me you know that's we understand the point that's being made it's not like you literally are dead um and i think ephesians 2 does play off that idea ephesians 2 1 you know what 2 1 through 3 but by and large almost exclusively in paul death has a it is grounded like like adam it is grounded in a in an understanding of a word the normal understanding of a word um and the only way the metaphor even makes sense if you assume the meaning of the original word and then build on that. So that's how metaphors often work in Paul. So, for example, when Paul will talk about um, uh, the head of someone, you know, the, the head of, uh, you know, for example, um, Christ is the head of the body. Well, OK, we understand that to mean something, say, Ephesians or Colossians. Christ is the head of the body. Um, which is the church. The only way that makes sense is if we understand first that head and body is an organic metaphor, a somatic a metaphor for the unity of head and body. But that presumes that there is a base meaning of head and body, but there's an analogy or a metaphor that's applied to Christ to show us kind of uh, a bigger picture of what that originally meant. And so I think I think to reduce it to, ex to only spiritual death, so the only two interpretive options I think is likely are it's spiritual and literal or, or, or spiritual and literal or it's literal. I'm happy to include the spiritual component of it, existential component. Um, uh, Bardi, uh, good Bardians, uh, followers of Karl Barth will say uh, the noetic sin, no, the noetic effects of sin go all the way down. They, basically, they permeate your DNA, so to speak, to become silly about it. 
I'm happy with that. But I think, I think death didn't exist, at least for humans before the fall, because that's something I think Genesis is clear on. Death came through this, and that's why the tree of life is there. Um, so they, the fact that they, God introduces death as a response to immortality and sin is a big deal. And so I think the issue becomes more, if we reduce it to spiritual, we've missed out on two things. Because one, we miss out on kind of Paul's worldview of death as an actual power. Because in these things, death is actually doing something. If you want to call it a spiritual power, we should call it a demonic power. Because I think that's what spiritual means for in that context, because um, in, two, in 1 Corinthians 15, it's not, death isn't, um, l death is the, literally the final enemy to be annihilated or abolished, right? It's not a spiritual death, it's literal bodily death. Throughout 1 Corinthians 15, death always refers to bodily death or the cessation of bodily life. And so when we take that and we spiritualize it, we essentially, and the joke is, you're basically running into the problem of of what a lot of conservative Christians see from progressive Christians. Oh, the resurrection spiritual, or this is spiritual, or this is spiritual. I'm not, I'm not knocking anyone on that, but it's kind of the same sort of hermeneutical kind of deployment where it's like, if everything starts becoming spiritualized, then words begin to lose their meaning. And we run the risk of kind of flattening out the text and kind of sanitizing it. And we all do that. You know, we're all guilty of that. You know, I'm not, I'm not knocking anyone because I do it all the time. You know, if the text is uncomfortable, my first thought is, oh, it's a metaphor. It's like, well, that, that only has so much interpretive currency. All this to say, um, I think death here functions both apocalyptically as kind of an invasive, demonic, real power. I, ironically, unironically, death has life because death feeds on life. So in some sense, death is alive, at least in a personified agentival sense. Um, but also spiritually, the impact of death is corrosion. It is separation. It is uh, obliteration. It is it is relationally um, broken apart from God and all that. But that's because we know what death truly is. Death is the cessation of bodily life. And that leads us to think about death in a more holistic way. So my answer is it's a both and. And I, I would reject that death has is exclusively or even primarily spiritual. I would happily say death has a... Um, a sub meaning of, of, of kind of separation or spiritual, but it is not the primary meaning, but it can enhance. And I think rightly so properly used the meaning of literal death, if that makes sense. Hmm. Okay. So just, just to be hundred percent clear. So when you're thinking, when you see verse 13 and you say, you see, well, 14, when you see verse 14 and it says, yeah, death reigned from Adam until Moses. Is, is that referring to spiritual and physical death there because obviously it's talking about the the you know the first sin of adam and then when the law came right right and so you have 14 that says yet death exercised dominion or tyranny or kingship from adam to moses even over those whose sins were not like the transgression of adam um so the question that becomes is if death is spiritual then is sin spiritual um wh where does that where do we draw the line in terms of interpreting it spiritually you know what i mean what's the stopgap here because if, if that's spiritual, then why would we not interpret sin spiritually? Because they're both taken together. You know, sin giving birth to death, death kind of being the thing. And there's an epicycle where you can't, you can't really divorce the two. So my question to people then becomes, is sin spiritual? In some sense, yeah. I can, if we mean in terms of how I define it, existential, you know, that sort of a component, relational, sure, has that impact. Um, my issue is more a matter of, I think, I don't think interpreting it purely spiritually gets to the point because you might say, 
and this gets into the issue of, of, of law, specifically in Romans 7. Um, the law came and the law had a function. The law was designed to curb death and sin, but the problem is it exacerbated it. You know, basically it highlighted sin and death. It, 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 it cast a very long, uh, it cast, it put, instead of kind of curbing it or restraining it, you know, holding it, you know, curbing, you know, keeping it from getting worse, it intensified it because the law being a good thing showed us what sin was truly like. You know, the, the, the light basically shone on the darkness and the sin basically grew darker, you know, because we can see it. You know, that was the point of the law. The law was to restrain sin and death and evil and stuff like that. But even then it got corroded and perverse, even though it was a good thing. It's like, you know, your parents always tell you something like, um, don't run in the street. And they're very strict about that. Don't run in the street. Don't run in the street. And it can get oppressive. It can get, you know, that it can be overdone. The whole point is don't run into the street because a car might hit you. You know, so that's in many in some sense how the law was functioning. And so when it says uh, death reigned, and I'm reading from the NRSV because it popped up first, um, death, uh, rather, um, death exercised dominion from Adam to Moses, you had basically without, basically that was the point when, when you didn't have the law, or at least the Torah. And the Torah from that point on was designed to restrain and um kind of cultivate good relationships, right? The, the whole purpose of the law was to show us how to please God because that's what God desired. God desired for us to be in good relationship with him. And then uh, you have a bit of a digression in verse 15, you know, the free gift and then the free gift again. Um, but then verse 17, because of the one man's trespass, death exercised dominion through that one. And the fact that Adam isn't mentioned there, specifically, you know, from Adam to Moses from that time period means that death, the reign of death has been expanded. So, um, the law basically could not curb death. The law could not stop sin and death, but Christ can. And that's kind of where the antithesis, uh, where Christ as the antitype of Adam is so important because whatever Adam did through sin, death and law and all that sort of stuff, whether it was from Adam to Moses or from Adam to now, Christ is the one who solves that problem. And if we think about it too, Christ's resurrection is of course not spiritual, although it is spiritual, it is literal. We believe Christ literally rose from the dead, bodily from the dead. That's literally the very thing we, that, that's why we're Christians. You know, that's, 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 that's what you die for if you're a Christian. You know, I'm not going to die for the inerrancy of scripture, although I believe in it. I'm not going to die for egalitarianism, although I believe it. I will die for the resurrection of Jesus because that's where my hope is. And so I think that's kind of a way of trying to at least conceptualize how Paul is thinking about these things. It has a spiritual component, but it is not primarily spiritual. He's thinking about literal death. And I think in verse 17, he expands death beyond Adam to Moses from Adam to Christ. And so it's not. Um, and then, of course, we still live with mortality, right? We still live under the impacts of that fallen Adamic realm. But we have the hope of resurrection. We have the hope of the future restoration of all things and kind of so on and so forth. So in verse 13, it says, for before the law was given, sin was in the world but there's no accounting for sin when there's no law. So this seems to show that for some people, at least that they're like before God came along and gave a law, don't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, that that could have been referring to uh, like, you know, sin, but sin isn't sin unless there's a law. Like there was wrongdoing. There could have been death before the fall for the fall and all that kind of stuff. Like, what do you think about that? Yeah, so the issue then becomes um, verse 13 speaking to the idea of sin existing or being in the world before the law. 
but you have a long period of time before the law comes about, you know, just in terms of time and history, right? So Moses, it takes a while for Moses to come down, you know, for Torah, the Torah to be written. Um, and God, and this is hinted at in Romans 3, that God passes over the sins of old. You know, God kind of shows forbearance or clemency towards sin, the sins of old, in Christ. You know, so God shows us, one, that God is patient. You know, God is desiring people to come to repentance and stuff like that. So it means that it actually shows that, I think the verse actually is communicating um, that w before there was Torah the th you know, or the law, sin existed, of course, because you have, you know, the fall, so to speak, the fall, then sin, then law. You have this kind of idea of sin existing and doing all that, but there's a lack of, we might say, um, God's judgment. In, in the sense of God is showing forbearance or clemency to people. It's not as if God doesn't have what God desires. But then the law, he gives us the law, the Ten Commandments, and the whole point is to live under this new reign, this new realm. You know, this, this, this is now what God desires from us. And so instead, and, and so the purpose is not speaking about, because sin has already happened. Sin has already entered into the world. So sequence-wise, it doesn't make sense to say this was before the fall, because this fall has already happened, literally in the previous verse. So that's kind of how I see it. Just to be simple about it. All right, yeah, that helps. That answers the question. Okay, so it has to do with law, not, you know, when the the, the New Testament context of the law is, is, you know, referring to Torah. Okay. All right, well, that was all we had time to get into today. I appreciate you coming on here, Nick, uh, talking about Romans, original sin, and all that. Nick, any last words before we head out? No, it's just uh, one, of course, thank you. It's always a, a fun time to nerd out with you. Um, yeah, if for people who want to get in touch with me, New Testament theologists, that's that's where I'm doing stuff. Um, uh, one thing to just keep in, in mind for all of us is, is, at least according to Romans 5, that whatever wherever you are, whatever's going on, death is, of course, the thing by which Jesus came to basically disrobe, right? Jesus is the, is the one through his resurrection who dethrones death. And... For Christians, that is amazing good news. Whatever you think about original sin, or original death, mortality, where, whatever you find yourself in, all of that. The, the purpose is that Christ's resurrection undoes everything that Adam and Eve did. And that is that is our hope, that we get to participate in that new life of the Spirit, as Romans 8 talks about. So just a, a word, even though death is not fun to talk about sometimes, death is complex, death, death is weird. Um, Christ. Christ defeats death through the Spirit. And so that's where we get to live now. So it's, I think it's ultimately a word of hope. Amen. Awesome. I appreciate it. Yeah, definitely, guys, check out New Testament Theologist, uh, Split Frame split frame of Reference podcast. Way too um, much mouthful. <laughs> nice. Um, but, guys, I hope you guys uh, hope you have a good night, Nick, and I uh, appreciate you coming on. See you later.